0: friday live stream i'm mike winger this is my cat moxie and we together with our powers combined are going to try to answer your questions about jesus god the bible all those types of things very important issues in life as as cats are as well and the first question i have today is from donald Burgess. as we're taking your questions in the live chat right now we're going to grab 20 from you guys and i'm you know some get grabbed some don't. i'm sorry for those who like you try and they don't get grabbed it's not personal we just have too many questions. Uh, But Donald Burgess has a question, says, you taught once in a past video that when we pray, we should not ask God to change us. That would be like asking or expecting God to do all of the work. Can you please elaborate on that and how to rightly pray instead? And uh, I'm going to say, I want to clarify this a little bit. And I don't want to just say, don't pray for God to change you like period, end of story without context. Hey, everyone, don't pray that God will change you. I don't want to say that, but I do want to say there's an important truth that's in this that I'm trying to get at. So let me explain first. Let's give the context of this statement of maybe you should stop asking God to change you in a certain way let me put it that way. And here's the context. First, God does change us, right? Like we, we we recognize this as Christians. This is kind of like foundational to our beliefs that when we put our faith and trust in Christ, he gives us, he takes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. That's the analogy that we have in the book of Ezekiel. Um, he We are born again. We're a new creation. And now we can walk in the spirit, not the flesh. So this is like a a massive transformational change that happens when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit enters into your life, into to join with you, that you would be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So that's like something God's doing. But here's why I think it's a problem when you then say you struggle with a regular sin issue, with a bad attitude about something, and you turn and you say, God, just change me, and then you go about your life waiting for God to change you passively because I think it's already happened and it's already happening. God is already doing a lot. So when you say, God, change me, it can become a denial of the change God is already doing in your life. And this is not what you mean it to be. It's not like it's intentional. You're not doing it deliberately, but I'm saying you because I've done this. Okay, this has been me and the lights went on and I changed the way I prayed. And so um, if I say, God, you know, I'm struggling with this sin issue, just change me. And then I continue sinning and I'm like, I'm just waiting on God to change me. And what if God would say to you something like, I've already brought you the change. Now it's your turn to to make a move, to make a choice, and to basically lean into the things I've already given you and already done for you. Let me give you some specific scriptures that will help us understand how this can be a rejection of our responsibility. So um, Philippians 2.13 is one of them. i will bring up the the Bible app here, Um, for it is God who works in you, both to will and and to work for his good pleasure. Now you might think, see, that's proof, Mike. God changes me. I don't do the change. Actually, if you're the person who, like me in the past, would say, Well, I'm not changing this way because God hasn't changed me, you might be denying Philippians 2.13. Because Philippians 2.13 says that God is working in you to will and do for his good pleasure. Will, that that's the mentality to have the willpower to be able to, and then to perform, to have the ability to actually do the things he's calling you to do. God's already working in you to do this. So when I say, God, change me, I might be saying, God, you are not working in me to will and do according to your good pleasure. You are not currently having this impact in my life. It can be a way of denying the the work that God is already doing in my life. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we have this wonderful promise, another verse for us. I got like three more I'll share with you, and then we'll be going to your guys' questions um, from the live chat. No temptation's overtaken you that is not common to man and God is faithful. Here's what God's already doing when you're tempted. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. God, I I'm I'm not I'm committing this sin and I won't stop. As a Christian, as a saved, born again, spirit-filled Christian, I won't stop and if you're thinking because you haven't changed me yet, you haven't done that work yet, but God's already limiting temptation. He says you won't be tempted beyond what you're able. So there's an important principle there that we, we want to acknowledge in our prayers. In Galatians 5, let me give you another verse. Um, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. See, Paul talks about it like you already have the Holy Spirit working in your life. And now if you walk according to the desires of the Spirit, which are already there for you to walk in, then you will not walk in sin. This implies that there that the pivot point for the believer not the non-believer, for the believer who's in Christ. The point where you decide whether you will sin or not sin is not based upon a change God might do in your life, right? There's already been a change and that decision point is yours to make. That's a big deal, right? The, The desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. And he goes on to talk about it. You have a battle, but God is already present helping you in that battle. Another verse for you, Ephesians four, you start to realize how like pervasive this is that when I deal with sin, when I deal with bad, wrong attitudes, sinful attitudes, I need to say, God, you are already working in my life. And I acknowledge that. So here's Ephesians four, verse 22, that we should put off our old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Who's the one doing the putting off here? Who's putting off? Is it God putting off your old self for you? God, change? No, you're putting off the old self because God's already working in you to enable you to do that. Um, so which belongs to your former manner of life and, corrupt, and is corrupt through deceitful desires and that we should what be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. See, God's already created the new self in you and now you need to put on the new self. Do you see that God's already done it? Now you need to walk in it. That is the the message for Christians, for freedom from sin issues, for changed attitudes about wrongful things. Don't act like your environment has to change or God has to change you internally. Acknowledge what he's already done and now walk in it. This can be a hard pill to swallow, but it's it's a good one. <laughs> Romans 13, 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I think there's many people who are out here who are like, God, I'll, I'll change when you change me. I just I want to stop the sin, but they're making what provision for the flesh They're they're They have things in their life They're enabling themselves. They're making choices that lead them into sin And they're like you know, i'm going to keep making provision for the flesh and i'll stop the sin when god changes me This can be a way ultimately of me saying god I'm, not going to acknowledge the work of the holy spirit already in my life I'm, not going to acknowledge the new person you've created in me I'm, not going to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh Instead i'm going to take all that for granted and i'm going to look at you and say god I'll live better when you do something for me. That's what I'm saying is the danger of saying, God change me. Um, it's okay. I understand saying, God, here's me. I take full responsibility for my issues. I still pray that you continue to change my life, but I acknowledge more importantly that you are already changing me. I, I repent. I turn from that stuff. I take responsibility for my decisions. I think that's very important for us to have as Christians. I think that's a biblical mentality to have towards our sin issues beware the woe is me, I can't change, I'm stuck this way attitude, that oh, it hurts you. It helps you because you don't feel responsible for your sin, but it hurts you because you don't change. Question number two, this is from Kevin Lionel who says, are you, forgiving? Are you forgiven or held accountable for the sins you're not aware of and don't repent of? For example, gluttony, laziness, or even getting mad at someone and later forgetting about it. Um, good question. So... I believe that as a Christian, your forgiveness depends not upon individual repentance of individual sins, but rather a general repentant attitude towards sin and faith in Christ. And, and that, that is a general attitude that's very important and key for us as Christians. Jesus went out and he says, repent and believe, right? The disciples go out, they say, repent and believe. So yeah, have your attitude towards sin and your attitude towards God change and put your trust in Jesus Christ. But I'm not suggesting that each individual sin must be repented of as they are forgiven individually. Uh, That's a different situation because now you have a a salvation area where you say, oh, I'm forgiven in pieces. Like God forgives me for the sins I repented of, but then there's the ones over here that I haven't, maybe I'm not aware of, right? Like maybe I'm rude to my spouse and I'm so used to it. I don't even notice I'm doing it. And that, that happens a lot, actually. It happens all the time in marriages, but. Are we just say that person is unforgiven for those sins, which means that they stand before God condemned. They're not saved now. I don't think we get saved in pieces like that. I think you have salvation or you don't. You, you're you in Christ. And if you're in Christ, your sins are covered, right? Because you're positionally in Christ. And so you have to kind of think of it not as which of my sins are forgiven, but the question is, am I in Christ or am I not in Christ? That That hopefully answers the question. Yes, I have issues still. Some I'm not even aware of. That doesn't mean I'm not a Christian. Yes, I have sins I still commit, some I am aware of, and some I haven't repented of. Does that mean you're not a Christian? Well, no, because I don't think repentance is meant to be micromanaged and applied to each individual little tiny thing. I think it's meant to be a general attitude. That's how I understand it when when it talks about general repentance, uh, turning, changing your attitude from sin to God. So I, I hope that that helps. Uh, it, I recommend reading Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3 to read what it talks about, how they're in Christ, what it means to be in Christ. The key phrase there is in him, in, I in, <laughs> that I'm, I'm in Christ. That's a positional term. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. Kevin, I recommend you check that out. Read it nice and slow. Think about what, what it means to be in Christ and recognize that um, he then talks to the same people in Ephesus about putting off sin, about putting off other issues, but he doesn't do it in order for them to be in Christ, to be forgiven individually for individual sins. They do it because they're living from their position in Christ, right? This is who you are. Now put on that more. I hope that answers your question. Stephen Curry has a question. Why do Christians see suicide as a sin if it's never condemned in the Bible? Why should I be forced to live a pathetic life I never asked for? Um, Okay, I'm going to tackle this. I'm going to be very... um, I'm going to treat you like an adult. (laughs) Okay, Stephen. Why should I be forced to live a pathetic life I never asked for is a very childish thing to say. And anybody who's thinking it, I understand thinking it. I totally get being there emotionally, but it's not rational, right? If God was to ask you if you wanted to live, ask you if you wanted to have a life, he would have to create you and make you alive in order to ask you. It's not logically possible for God to ask you if you want to be alive. That's not logically possible for him to do that before he creates you. It's, it's, it's just a weird, it's complaining about things um, out of a frustration, but it's not rational. And when we start entertaining irrational thinking like that, we we, we head down some dark paths in our lives and in our minds. Um, so yeah, your, your, your pathetic life you never asked for. Okay, if, if you're a Christian, Stephen, if you're a Christian, then, then what you describe as a pathetic life is a, a blip of suffering in the, in the light of eternal joys and glory. And by no measure can the suffering of this world compare to the eternal joys and glory that are that are coming before you in Christ. And so if I want to complain to, to God, as a Christian, if you want to say on the Christian worldview, I want to complain to God for the life I have temporarily suffering here, you must acknowledge on that Christian worldview the glories that are coming that are eternal, that far out Oh, sorry, I knocked over my magnifying glass. The, the glories that far outweigh all of our all of our sufferings and all of our pains and all of our tribulations. So on the Christian worldview, your suffering is very temporary and it is even as even as intense it is, it's minor compared to what's coming. So to me, that answers that question for my heart and for my head and intellectually. But if you say, but but I'm not a Christian, I, I believe Christianity, let's say Christianity is true, but I'm not a Christian. Okay, well, now you have a different dilemma, which is that you still have these temporary sufferings, but the eternal stuff where you're choosing to reject Christ, that's not on God. His hand's reaching out to you. His gospel goes out to you. God loves you. He wants to know you. He wants you to trust in him. He wants you to put your faith in Jesus. You're rejecting that. So this is not something he's foisted upon you. It's a choice you're making. So that's not something we can really blame somebody else for. Um, Now in a non-christian worldview, let's say that that there's God, but there is no heaven. There's no hell There's no afterlife and God made it all and then you're like What is up with this world? Why am I why am I brought into a world where there's suffering some of many much of it? I didn't cause and then I suffer and I die and that's it I would say yes That seems strange But not on a christian worldview where there is eternity to consider in light of these little things that we suffer now by comparison So why do christians then see suicide as a sin? Uh, because it's, it's killing, it's killing of humans. So what we, we see a person who's wanting to commit suicide. And we think two things, we think your life is valuable, right? They, they don't, they don't think that probably, right? They want to end it. We think your life is valuable. We think your life is still valuable. And this partly is because we believe you're made in the image of God. It's partly because we believe that God works all things together for good. And that even the great suffering we experience now has eternal uh, rewards and, and benefits. And so we see value there. And we also believe that your life, this is the second thing we think as a Christian, is that your life doesn't belong to you ultimately. You're the creation. You're not the creator. And so I don't actually own my life. It is something that I am. I, I owe to God. God is the ultimate owner of all things. And so it's one thing like, it, let's say I draw a painting and then I destroy the painting. Okay, well, there's a sense in which you go, well, it may be tragic that you destroyed that wonderful painting, but you drew it. You're the artist. It's your work. It's your property. I guess you could do what you want. But let's say now instead that the painting destroys itself there is the artist to consider right the artist says but i made that painting (laughs) like obviously paintings can't destroy themselves I'm, i'm stretching my analogy a bit but but the painting kills itself that that's different let's say that let me give you a different example and this is a lesser example between you and god you have a kid and your kid isn't happy your kid wants to commit suicide People don't usually think in these terms, but the child killing themselves is, is not only harm to the child, but there's also great harm to the parent. When your life doesn't belong to you and you realize that you have obligations to others and that your highest obligation is to God, you realize that self-killing is wrong to God. It's a tragedy to God. It, it's, it's my life. Isn't just about me. I'm not the beginning and end of this universe. And so, um, it has to do with love, love for God love for others around you, and genuinely recognizing human value. These are some of the things. Now, I do have a teaching on the topic of suicide, if anybody's interested, and I'll link it below. And Mods, maybe one of you could put in the live chat right now. Um, I guess it'll be on that side. I don't know. Uh, A link to my teaching on the topic of suicide. I'd appreciate that, if anybody's interested in more. Number four, um, Kathy says, I always hear Christians say they felt the presence of God. How can I feel his presence? I've read his word as much as I can and pray often, but have never felt his presence. Thank you. Uh thanks, Pastor Mike. Um, Kathy, let me let me um let me try to answer this carefully, uh, <laughs> which I hopefully do with with all of my answers, but um if we were to talk about feeling the presence of God, okay, let me put it to you this way. Um You have this concept of feeling God's presence that comes probably primarily from a community of people, not from the text of scripture. Okay. That doesn't mean that they're wrong. I just want to acknowledge the different sources. That's it. Okay. They could be right. They could all be totally right about what it means to feel God's presence. Now, what if you just set aside that for a second and you just look at scripture and you ask yourself, where do I see people describing feeling God's presence in the Bible? And I think the answers are going to be pretty slim here. Um, So you have things like where uh, Job, God God shows up to Job in a whirlwind. Okay, but this is obviously not what people today are often talking about when they say, I felt God's presence. Because this wasn't even something he felt. It was something he saw. It was something physical that was happening around him. Okay, that's probably not what they're talking about. Um, We'd see Isaiah, who was caught up and he saw the presence of the Lord. He saw the Lord seated on the throne. Okay, but this is not what people are talking about as they worship and they think, I'm feeling God's presence. That's not what they're talking about. Jesus says, we're two or more gathered in my name. There I am in their midst. That's a promise about his presence, especially in um, the eldership of the church and the decisions they make for the body. <laughs> That's an interesting study to do sometime. But he didn't say there, they will feel my presence. He says there, I'm with them. Now that creates a different spin. Th- this implies that he's with us whenever we're gathered in his name. He is with us. His presence is there, Period. And an emphasis on feeling his presence might actually cause us to end up denying his presence when we're not, quote, feeling it. Do you see what happens when we when we try to think biblically about these issues? We go, wait a minute. Feeling God's presence is a very subjective feeling. Like, I feel like God's with me. It's a subjective thing. And maybe some people are making it up. And maybe other people are genuinely feeling God's presence. Maybe some others are feeling his presence and they don't recognize it as his presence because they just aren't that great at, you know, discerning what their feelings are. Maybe any of those things can be true, but, but this should not be the emphasis. Like if you're in a community where the emphasis is, "Oh, oh, I just felt God. I just felt God. That's not what we read in scripture. That I mean, it's just not what we read. When We read about the early church gatherings. We read about like the the um, when tongues happens in the book of Acts chapter two, right? And the, the Spirit descends. This is not a felt thing. This is like a visible scene, all all sensory perception accompanied with miraculous signs. Okay, that's don't. It's not like they went away going. Did you feel that? Did you feel it? God's presence. we they actually experienced seeing these things. So I'm going to suggest that we should not be um, seeking to validate our own spirituality with this sort of, here's my community. They emphasize feeling God's presence a lot when scripture has zero emphasis on that. Zero. No, I mean, it's none that I'm aware of. Okay. No, no emphasis I'm aware of. In fact, scripture seems to indicate that Christ is in, is present in the life of every single believer. The book of John, Jesus says, I will make our home with him. That's with you. You believe in Christ. So his presence is with you. I would focus more on acknowledging the presence of God with you already than I would on trying to feel when God shows up. That kind of terminology, I think is actually sort of contrary to what we read in the scripture that God is present with every believer at all times. Um, This is none of this should invalidate someone who thinks like, I just really felt God. like, yeah, you felt, but um, God was already there it's not because God showed up and he wasn't there before <laughs> your feelings were a nice bonus, a cherry on top, but the cherry is not the, the cake pie. What is, does this phrase go? Whatever it is. You know what I mean? Question number five, let's go to number five. And that is Brandon Kurtz. Do you think the astronomical alignment on September 23rd, 2017 is a fulfillment of revelation 20, uh, 12, one through three. It feels like astrology to me. Um, let's look at the revelation passage and let's try to answer this question. I'm not an astronomer, nor am I an astrologist. (laughs) Um, revelation 12 and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving child of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his heads, seven diadems. Um, Okay, so, you know, the, the dragon is Satan. He sweeps uh, a third of the stars of heaven and casts them to the earth, which many people think is a third of the angels. And um, she gives birth to the child. Okay, several questions arise, but let me first acknowledge this. this. is This is not specificity, right? Revelation is not giving us this deep, clear specificity. Like, for instance, if it says, one day in the future, a great sign will appear in heaven. Oh, now it's a prediction, not something he, John saw. It's something that will happen and you will see it. Okay. So if it's a one day in the future, a sign will appear in heaven and it'll be a, a woman clothed with a sign with the moon under her feet. And then you could start to look at like astronomy and say, okay, you have, you have, okay, there's, there's the, there's this woman constellation. And then the, the sun over here and the moon down there under her feet, you know, you know, when you look at it, especially from Jerusalem or something, And you can do all those things, but what you can't do is say that it actually tells you it's a prediction of the future. Like it doesn't say that. So some people think that the child is actually, this, this harkens back to the past, Revelation 12. Here's one view. I'm not really sure what my view is on this passage, but um, one view is that it harkens back to the past, that the, the great sign appearing in heaven, the woman who she's pregnant and she gives birth in agony, that this is. This is about the past. It's about how Israel brought forth the child. and the dragon, I, I say not Israel, not just Mary because the dragon goes on to persecute um, uh, her and her, her children and it, it seems like it's national Israel, not just one individual. seems like a group of people the dragon's persecuting. And um, they would say it's the past. Now um, I know Michael Heiser, his view on this particular passage is that this is describing astronomical things. Right, these descriptions, and it's describing when Christ was born. So he has actually a date and a time—not a time of day, but a date like on the calendar when he goes. This is when Jesus was probably born, based upon this astronomical sign. We can look back and see. I think we're, ooh, we're getting a little bit into like you know conjecture here, <laughs> to put it lightly. Um, um, others would say, oh no, this is this is future. This is a future thing. But I, I'm going to suggest this to conclude. That Revelation 12, 1 through 3 is September 23rd, 2017, is taking lots of, like, we're several steps away from a clear understanding of this, of the text at this point. And this is, this is the danger. The same Christian that will jump like hermeneutical loops to predict September 23rd, 2017 is the same Christian that would never let someone do this when it comes to the gospel, Right, the gospel is like we're saved by grace through faith, you know, apart from works, lest anyone should boast. These, these, you know, they're going to really be clear, understand it in context carefully. But when it comes to prophecy, all of a sudden it's the most flexible text in the world. And so, um, I, I, I have to admit my bias here. Like, for years and years, I've heard people abuse prophecy, overly reading texts of scripture to apply it into their contemporary time. And I, and I look at church history, I see that people have been doing this for a long, long time. And in 20 years, everybody looks silly because they're always interpreting prophecy to be fulfilled in the next 15, 10, 20 years, right? Because this is the obvious bias of humans. I read it. When's it going to happen soon in my life? And I think we need to, um, if you want to say you think it fits September 23rd, fine, but at least acknowledge that you are going way beyond the clear meaning of the passage, way beyond. And maybe you could be right, but it is a whole lot of conjecture and it is not clear like say the way that you would establish the doctrine of the trinity the way that you would establish your understanding of how salvation works um or other things like that number six fox.dude says do you think martin luther went to heaven despite the fact that he had a hatred towards jews and was unrepentant um i don't know that i'm qualified to answer that question (laughs) um fox.dude i don't think i'm qualified just to be, I I, I get, I'll talk for briefly about Martin Luther and his issues, but you have to understand, like here's somebody who professes Christ and, and then has this like horrible attitude and, and, and maybe even some actions. I'm not sure about that, uh, towards Jewish people that strikes of bitterness and hatred and anger. And that some, some of his later writings that were just like atrocious. And you're like, that's so unchristian. Um, but now here's me, hundreds of years later, I'm gonna, I know this little about him and I'm going to go, I'm going to determine whether he's in heaven or hell. Like I just think I'm being unwise here. I'm not going to comment. But Martin Luther, um, for those who don't know, the guy that nailed the 95 Thesis to the, to the door of the church in Wittenberg, the, um, uh, the man who ate a diet of, of worms, uh, that's a joke, that's not true. He, <clears throat> um, uh, he, he wrote early on, about how he was very hopeful about the Jews coming to the knowledge of the Messiah. But later on in his life, I think through um, altercations and problems he had with Jewish communities, and there was tons of tension on both sides, okay, it's not all one-sided, but it's on both sides between Jews and and Catholics, Jews and and Christians, and and the Catholic Church historically had been extremely anti-Semitic. That's just reality, right? Like how many of the the first people you know who the first people I'm aware of that were requiring Jews to wear a sign to show that they were Jewish was was the popes so it's like yeah that yeah, read, go read the papal bulls how many of them are about Jewish people it's just creepy um all that being said um later on later on in his life luther got like really bitter and angry and mean-hearted towards Jewish people and he wrote in uh, one, one you know, infamous letter, he wrote something about like how he thought their synagogue should be destroyed and all this kind of thing. And there's two things led to this. One is anti-Semitism in general. Another was a general view that the Catholics and the Reformation had. This is this is key to understand this, that religious laws should be enforced even to the um, torturing or I, sh- I should say the punishment or destroying of other religions like this was something that they felt they were supposed to do to root out heresy and not allow there to be a freedom of thought and freedom of religion this is not a value that they had any of them had back then historically it's just not a value anyone has at least that's my understanding of things Uh, hopefully it's accurate that being said what we look at as specifically anti-semitism is couched in an environment where they were like um wait you believe that we shouldn't baptize babies We're going to, we're going to outlaw you, chase you down, kick you out, even, even hang or or drown some of you. And you're like, what? (laughs) Okay. This was, this was a view sacralism where the, the religious control and enforcement of religion through this, through the power of police that most of us would reject nowadays. And may I say was not the case in the early church. This is a cultural thing affecting these different believers. It is not something that rises naturally from Christianity, where Jesus just says, if they reject you, just shake the dust off your feet. If they reject you, just go to another town, go somewhere else. If they reject you, that's their choice. You stay true to me. Um, my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my servants would take up swords and fight, Jesus says. right. So th- that's Jesus. That's the New Testament. That's not the culture Martin Luther was in, and he didn't reform enough in that regard. So, um, yeah, really shameful stuff, but I'm not a follower of Martin Luther. Um, I'll, I agree with him on some things, but I'm not his follower. Number seven, and we got no more questions. I've got all 20 questions ready for you guys. Um, I hope this is helpful for you. It helps you think biblically about things. Sometimes it's these random thoughts that come up, these random ideas that we juggle. It doesn't, you don't have to agree with me on everything. This is not what this is about. I, I sometimes have labored hard <laughs> in, in groups I've led to get people to realize, like, you don't have to agree with me on everything, but I'd like you to think about it at least. And so this can really sharpen you, not because I'm right about everything, but because there's a process by which we're thinking biblically about things. Andrzej Polak has a question. What is the difference between the normative and regulative principle of worship? Any useful thoughts to this discussion? What to avoid? What to strive for? Thank you. Um Andrej, uh first before we go to this this answer. I I just want you guys to see my cat. There. Yeah, there she is. <laughs> she she's in her she's on a kick or she really likes that chair. She just like really really wants to sit there. Um so uh, Andridge, um, when you use phrases like normative and regulative principle of worship, this is, pro- I'm guessing this is terminology that comes from a very denominational background. That's not an insult. I'm not. There's nothing wrong with that. What I'm suggesting is that to a guy like me, who was primarily raised up in ministry in Calvary Chapel, we don't have those strong denominational connections. And so terms like normative and regulative principle of worship, that might have a very Everyone knows what that means in a certain circle, like maybe in a, maybe in certain, like, you know, Baptist circles or Presbyterian circles or something like that. and Not so much in Calvary chapels. Obviously, normative and regulative principle of worship are not biblical terms. (laughs) There's nothing there in scripture to, to give rise to those things. This is something else. Um, What should we avoid? What should we strive for in our, in our times of worship? Um, I think that uh, I have a more of a bare bones approach to these things. Whereas, say, some denominations have a, have a strong sense of liturgy. That is the order of service. You know, we have this we have this event. There's always a public scripture reading. We stand for the reading. Then there's going to be, um, uh, you know, this, this kind of singing will take place. And then there's going to be a message. And then it's going to be followed by this. And they might have like a strong sense of liturgy. Maybe they read certain creeds. I know I have a friend who's church. And I'm cool with it. Go for it. They read certain creeds. What would be weird is telling everybody that their churches are supposed to do that too just because you like it and think it's a good idea. Normative principles of worship for Christians are going to be that we, um, we we have center stage, the the lordship of Christ, and the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. These things are regularly reinforced in our gathering, right? The, the death, resurrection, lordship of Christ, the trust that we have in the word of God, um, these types of things should, should be regular in our in our times of worship because that's kind of the core of Christianity, our our salvation, the gospel itself. These things are core, so they should be regular. I think the the uh, the things they continued in Acts two forty two. We have a, a description of how the early church was, and I think that it becomes a blueprint a lot of people use for how worship should take place or what should happen in local churches. Acts two forty two says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching right the apostles teaching so here we are where's the apostles teaching well that's in the scripture now we don't have the apostles with us but we have their writings we have their teaching in the new testament and of course they taught much of the old so we have both we have the old and new testament so we need the bible being taught in our local fellowships and fellowship that is they gather together so they were getting the apostles teaching they were gathering together this is a regular thing christians should be gathering together on a regular basis and the breaking of bread and the prayers, and this is, this is super interesting. There's a translation question about the word, the phrase, the prayers there, but um, I'll get back to that in a second. So the, the breaking of bread, so this could refer to simply meals they were having together, or it could be referring to communion, that they were having regular communion services. And many churches are going to say, communion needs to be a regular part. This is the one liturgical element that we really want to say, yeah, communion. And I think it should, I think communion should be a a, a typical part of church. And whether that means every week, um, it does seem strange to me when it's like once a year, uh, that does seem strange to me. Once a year seems too few, too too infrequent and that that may not be healthy for the church. Um, but the breaking of bread and their communion, you're like, was it a meal or was it communion? And the truth is that they probably did both at the same time in the early church. It seems as though they didn't just do like you, if you showed up in the early church, the apostles aren't like, um after service we'll have lunch but right now we're going to have a, a small piece of matzah and some some grape juice or <laughs> wine it would have been wine um they're not doing that it's just part of a whole meal and if you think about it when jesus originally did that with the disciples it was part of a whole meal but the key elements were the bread and the cup so i think it's acceptable to do it either way but that's probably why we we debate on whether they're talking about a meal or communion they're probably doing both and the prayers um and some suggest that these were actually organized prayers, written prayers, that they would pray together. And it may be the phrase, the prayers, as the ESV translates it here, it's, it, it could suggest that. Others, let's see, NASB uh, just says, and to prayer. Um, NIV says, I think, I think they just say prayer. Yeah, and to prayer. Um, New King James says just in prayer. But the ESV says, hey, the prayers, because they think that there's good reason to to, to think that. At any rate... Prayer, um, which includes worship. Uh, Communion and fellowship and teaching the word of God seem like they should be a regular part of our worship, of our services. Number eight, M. Kofi says, is your wife part of your ministry? How do you keep your marriage God-centered? Well, my marriage is perfect in every way. Um, (laughs) Every possible way. Um, uh, No, but let me answer your question so is my wife part of my ministry yes she is in fact more and more so as time goes on and the reason for this is because my wife has a particular guilt gift set skill set when it comes to things like accounting and numbers and bank things and dealing with all that kind of stuff and so she is really overseeing all that stuff for bible thinker for this ministry which has become you know over time has become my full-time thing and so i'm super super grateful for that she's awesome um yeah, so her involvement is there. Um, obviously as her husband, I, I just like when I'm working through issues, I talk about them. So recently I've been talking to her about women in ministry a lot, because if you're around me and I'm working on it, I'm like, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And I just start asking questions of everybody, um, of things they've never studied just because I want, I want to think about it and talking helps me do that. Um, so she's, she's a part of my ministry in that regard. Um, she also supports me doing it, you know, like we would, we would, we'll have a night where we're home and it's in the evening and. I'm like, you mind if I study tonight? She's like, no, go ahead. Or uh, or she's like, well, I kind of wanted to do this. And so then I'll, I will not study that night and I'll do the thing with her. She supports me in that sense, obviously, just as, as a as a husband, as a man, just supporting me in what I'm doing, encouraging me in it, and giving me time and space to do it. Um, but yeah, she's hugely part of it, um, handling tons of stuff that would take 15, 20, 30 hours of week, probably longer for me. Um, if I was to do it instead of her, when it comes to all this stuff, right now, we're in the middle of setting up Bible thinker as its own incorporate, you know, incorporated thing. That's not just under like the wing of a church, but we're a standalone ministry and it was important for us to do that. And that is a massive amount. I've actually been spending a lot of hours on it. And so is she, this is the stuff nobody sees, but she's mostly involved in that kind of stuff. Um, how do I keep my marriage God centered? Um, that's interesting, uh, to think about how to answer a question like that. I mean, don't encourage sin in your home. <laughs> um, don't do wicked things together, pray for each other, encourage one another. Um, if, if, if in Ephesians we, you know, I seek to try to do what the calling to the husband is to to love my, my wife as Christ loved the church and to prefer her needs and desires over my own. And she seeks to honor Christ by having an attitude of submission and respect towards me. I think that that stirs up, um, having a God centered marriage. We rejoice in the Lord together. We, we do church together. We worship together. We pray together, those types of things. Um, I think what, what helps a God-centered marriage the most is just godliness in the husband, godliness in the wife. I mean, it seems really simple. I feel like I'm not really telling you anything special here, but maybe that's just how it really is. So, Number nine, Joe Williams. In Numbers 5, there's a test for an unfaithful wife in verses 27 through 28. However, the punishment called for appears to differ from that in Leviticus 20 verse 10, which calls for death. Am I missing something? um numbers five versus 27 to 28 let's read these together and just get on the same page as Joe and then we'll try to provide some thoughts and oh this so this is the bitter water test um the bitter water ordeal some people call it and it basically if a husband's like hey I I'm just going to summarize it for you the passage in numbers five if a husband's like hey I, I think my wife's cheating on me but he doesn't have proof. Um, rather than letting him just accuse her and her be guilty or letting the, 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 um, the jealousy and the, and the worries fester, he could actually come and bring her and say, Hey, let's do a test. And so God provides in the law. Now this isn't a test anybody else can do right now. We're not under the law and we don't have any guarantee that God would do anything with it. And so they, he has her go through a thing where she drinks this water and if, and if she's lying and if she's cheated, then something bad happens to her. I'll read it to you in a second. And if she's not lying, if she's telling the truth, nothing happens to her. Uh, let me talk about this for a few minutes because it's also a passage that um, atheists love to bring up. Okay, so so um, he comes before, he brings his wife before the priest and it says, the priest shall make her take an oath saying, if no man is laying with you, And if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you were under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband is lame with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell. Now, this is a difficult phrase to translate from Hebrew to English. Your thigh fall away and your body swell. What does this mean? Um, I'll talk about that in a sec. May this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen. Amen. She's agreeing that this water will prove whether she's innocent or guilty and then it'd be either a curse or her vindication proof that her husband's a jerk basically, um, publicly. Um, and the priest shall write, this is, this is the water. Listen to the water she drinks, Write These curses in a book, right? And wash them off into the water of bitterness. So she just, she's drinking water with some ink from the writing. This is not actually dangerous, not by itself. There's humanly, naturally nothing would happen to her. Women could drink this all day and nothing would ever happen. It would Maybe their tongues would get dark. I don't know. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. Um, okay, so um, let me read. The, these these are the verses you were getting at. Verse 27, 28. And when, she is, when he has made her drink the water, Then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings a curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain and her womb shall swell and her thighs shall fall away. Again, that challenging phrase to translate. And the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. Okay, well, this last part here implies that she's never going to have kids as a result of this thing. But the question we have is, does this kill her or does it not kill her? Um, now we do have information from the the, uh, the 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 Talmud, the Mishnah, like Jewish writings from around the time of Jesus and after, and these writings suggest that they didn't. They a, I'm gonna just give you the short thought here. The atheists will say, oh, this is this is an abortion. God's causing an abortion. Her thigh falls away, her womb, and all that. Um, and the NIV translates it that way. I think uh, unwisely, but um, the the time of Jesus, they would they had a rule that if a woman's pregnant, she's not allowed to drink this water. Think about this for a second. If the woman's pregnant, she's not allowed to drink this water. This is because they obviously thought it was not intended to harm a baby if she was pregnant. It was only a test for the woman. So this is not considered an abortion, at least by them. And a challenging passage to translate, we're certainly not going to go off on the limb and suggest that it it causes uh, an abortion when we don't have any clear evidence of that. I think the NIV made a bad, bad choice on this passage and and the atheists since then have been taking advantage of quoting it on twitter um uh but the uh the question you have is like well does she die or not well in the in the talmud i was reading this stuff when i was doing my study on divorce and remarriage don't ask me why i would you chase lots of rabbits when you're studying and um they did think the woman would die like they thought she would die she wouldn't just stop not be able to conceive she would actually die and Uh, this was their belief at the time so at least we have some ancient jews who thought that the numbers passage implied the death of the woman didn't think it should be applied to her if she was pregnant they would make they would make her wait until after she'd given birth but in leviticus 20 verse 10 we say if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death um so is that different okay well the, the the significant difference between these two is these are different scenarios this is a, a woman and man who are convicted. They're caught. It's proven. There's there's evidence that they've committed adultery together. So they're both to be put to death. This in the other situation in Numbers is a husband who's simply jealous. He suspects something of his wife. And I've known husbands who've suspected things have been right. And I've known husbands who suspected things. And they were just insecure, selfish, and paranoid. And so this is that scenario. So the bitter water is how you handle that scenario. It's just different situations. There's no proof. There's no evidence. So she takes this this oath before God. Does it kill her or does it just keep her from having kids? The passage isn't totally clear and later Jews seem to think it killed her and um, and it's not abortion <laughs> for those who bring that up. All right, number 10. Cool Bob has a question. All right, Cool Bob. He says, is it possible for a Muslim to be saved through faith since they also believe in into getting into heaven by God's grace, although through works and through repentance of sins? Um let me answer this question a few different ways. So Romans, um, I believe it's 11, six. Yeah. Um, it answers the last part of your question, which is if somebody believes they're saved by grace and works, isn't that still grace? Don't they still believe in grace? Cause they believe in grace and works. And I think Paul answers this question. And I, I almost say, sadly, this is not true. Like you can't, that doesn't work because I want to see more people in heaven. But, but I also don't want to pretend things work that don't work. Paul says, if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This is interesting because this is like, think philosophically for a moment. Paul's defining his terms. Paul's like, when I say we're saved by grace, I mean not on the basis of works. Because to Paul, that's just what grace means. Grace means not works. So when someone says, I believe in God's grace and my works, and they both achieve my salvation. And if you say this, that's not grace. What you've done by adding works is you've removed grace. That's no longer grace. So, belief in grace and works seems to be a fundamental false gospel. That's significant. But there's other problems with with Islam, and those other problems involve things like they have a fundamental false Jesus. Like in Islam, you believe, well, they're Muslim, but they're, but they're saved, right? They seem like a good person, but we're, none of us are good people. This is why we need salvation by Christ. So in Islam, fundamental beliefs about Jesus are that Jesus is not the son of God. Like this is important. It's considered a horrible sin in Islam. It's called shirk. If you declare that Jesus is the son of God. So they believe Jesus is not the son of God. They believe Jesus did not die on the cross. He was never crucified. This is an important teaching in Islam and that he did not rise from the dead. So they're denying the person and work of Christ. His, his nature, God the Son, and his death and his resurrection, these are denied as part of the central tenets of Islam. So he doesn't really believe in God's grace because God's grace comes through Christ, and he rejects Christ. So I, I want to see that Muslim come to Jesus. I want to see him. He is currently being led astray by Islam, led astray by Muhammad, and I can't look at that and say, yeah, oh yeah, I affirm that. I affirm that because those are lies about the, about the, about the very thing that saves you. Um, so yeah, a gospel by any other name (laughs) or uh, it's, or should say, um, it's called a gospel has the same name as the gospel, but it's not the gospel. It's not a gospel. It's, um, it's not really grace because it adds works and it's not the real Jesus because it rejects central tenets about Christ. So the only way I th- think a Muslim could be saved through faith is if they weren't really Muslim; they were just a Muslim in name only, but they really didn't believe those things. They really believed in Jesus, believed he died and rose again, um, yeah. And then they were like, "Well, I'm Muslim." I've met someone like this with Mormon who they say I'm Mormon and they denied Mormonism and they affirmed biblical Christianity. And I'm like, "You're not really Mormon." <laughs> so there was. I'm glad they were confused. They shouldn't call themselves Mormon. That's not true. But uh, yeah, yeah. Th- this is um. this is where Christianity is going to run into a a major roadblock with our culture, because in the end, our culture is going to say, look, if you're going to not affirm people where they're at, then we hate you. (laughs) So um, you're a big jerk. And to respond to this, let me just offer an analogy. Let's suppose that there was um, multiple doctors and you went to three doctors. You have a problem. You've got, I don't know, you, you need to have like, your appendix removed. You have appendicitis. And the first doctor you go to, he says, the only solution now is to get that appendix out before it bursts because you could die. And the next doctor you go to says, you know what you really need? You just need to eat bananas. Bananas are the best. Banana. The appendix loves bananas. Just eat dozens of bananas every day. And the third doctor you go to, he says, appendicitis is a myth. You don't even need to worry about it. Just do what you want with your life. You're fine. And then the first doctor says, those other two doctors will kill you. I'm the only one who has a solution for you. And the world looks at them and says, that doctor, he's really rude. He's so rude. I can't believe how rude he is. He's just putting down, he's putting down the banana doctor and the appendix denial doctor. He's, why is he, why is he such a guy? The appendix denier (laughs) that that guy is wrong. This is a good thing. This doctor should get up and tell everyone that the the guy's wrong because he's saving their lives by doing so. So Christianity is is, um, exclusive in the sense that Jesus is the only way. But if Christianity is true, then this is the greatest kindness in the world to tell everybody, right? So um, the the modern pushback, that Christians are simply rude because they're not affirming everybody in their beliefs is like living in la-la land. And you would never do this with medicine. I hope you wouldn't do it with medicine. And you shouldn't do it with eternal life either. Number 11, let's go to number 11. Bethany 88 has a question. If the wages of sin is death... Why is there a hell when a non-believer dies? Why wasn't that debt paid by their death? Um, So the, um, the debt according to the Bible, the question is like, what does scripture say? I'm going to give you a a particular verse here. Um, Revelation 20 verse 14. This talks about um, several events there is the initial life we live. There's the death we die, right? But after that, Revelation talks about how there's still another death consequence. It's still death. It's in the category of death, but it's future and it's after physical death has already taken place. So Revelation, um, let me back up a little bit. Chapter twenty, verse twelve, talking about a future time. This is in, in the in the in the the future final judgment. It says, "And I saw the dead." And they're already dead, right? They physically have died, great and small, standing before the throne. So this is, an, this is after death. This is part of the afterlife. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Ah, so you've died, but you haven't been judged according to what you've done. You've died, but there's perhaps more death in the future. For those who are outside of the gospel of Christ and the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead Who were in them and they were judged each one of them according to what they had done Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire What i'm going to say is The wages of sin is death but death means more than physical death and I think this might answer your question like simplistically to say, ah, so death isn't just, death is physically dying, but it's not only physically dying. There's more to death than just the physical death. Um, that's why the Bible talks about the second death. It talks about the dead who are then brought up to die a second time. So this is a future judgment that even, that is still called death. So, um, well, but they've died. Hasn't their price been paid? Oh yeah, well, they, they die, but that's not all of what death is. That's not all of it. There's more. And that would be the, this, the idea there. Um, um, now, you say, wasn't that debt paid? I, I don't think that we could say, just just on a side note here, Bethany, for my opinion on this, I don't think that we can say that when a person dies for sin, even the second death, that their their sin has been paid for as if their debt is clear. Um, I don't think that we should view it that way because it, in, in, that involves suggesting there's some kind of reconciliation there's some kind of like now now everything's okay um uh, like it, I, I don't think it's quite the same um they've paid a penalty they've, they've suffered a, a, a pain for their sin i just wouldn't use the terminology that their debt has been paid um at least i wouldn't go there i think we're making a claim that i i'm not sure that i'm comfortable with making maybe i should want to think about it some more number 12 pill of laughter says hey pastor mike greetings from england I was just wondering what your thoughts were on Exodus 9:12. Did Pharaoh have free will? Really grateful to God for the impact uh, for the impact of your ministry? Thank you, pill of laughter. Um, I like that name. I want a pill of laughter. Um, let's go to Exodus 912 together. Here it says, "But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses um, Absolutely. This is, this is so great for like an example of, of like our sort of social media world. We tend to live in a world where we, 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 we catch snippets of what people say and often out of context. And then we, we misunderstand what they mean. This happens a lot and it's something we have to guard ourselves against. I have to guard myself against. I hear a teacher uh, say something and I go, whoa, that didn't seem right. And I don't realize what he, what the context was when they said it. And so then I think they've got bad teaching in reality. Sometimes it's just like, oh, I just didn't, I didn't, I just got it out of context. So here, let's put this in context. Okay. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Um, um, let me see if I can um, find the passages I'd like to share with you on this. Okay. Here's, I'm I'm searching for Pharaoh's heart being hard because it's occurred several times in the book of Exodus. We were just in Exodus chapter nine. Here's us in Exodus 12. It says that Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Okay, well, Pharaoh's heart grew hard. That's interesting. Um, But that's not something that it says God did. That's something that Pharaoh, his heart is doing. So, God's not directly doing this. is important to recognize this because this this matters when we understand the causal nature of what happened to Pharaoh's heart. So the Lord said to Moses, "Pharaoh's heart is hard, right?" But what what happened? Well, his his heart grew hard on its own. In this case, in this particular situation, um, let me see. We have in verse fourteen, in verse twenty-two. Um, Pharaoh's heart grows hard again, and he doesn't heed them. This is this is when Moses does the snake thing and the Egyptians do their things and all this stuff. And his heart grows hard again. It's not God as the agent here. And it could easily have said God hardened Pharaoh's heart here, but doesn't. it doesn't says that his heart grew hard. So we get this other times as well. Um, exists eight, Pharaoh's heart grew hard. Again, it's just this, this thing, his heart is doing on its own. God is not directly causal in that. And then finally we, uh, We get to uh, your passage, which is Exodus 9.12. I guess I could go to 9.7 first. Um, The heart of Pharaoh became hard again. Okay, but this is again, he's on his own. And then chronologically, finally at the end, we have God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And that was in Exodus 9.12, the passage, the verse you gave. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. What are we getting from this that it's not just a single action on on behalf of god that god is actually just hardening pharaoh's heart and i have a whole study on this topic i'm going to link but i'm going to give you the quick summary so mods if you can find um my study why god hardens hearts and post that in in the video description or in the uh the live chat and i'll put it in the description down below if you're watching later it'll be there momentarily and um and the issue here is this um God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the question is, how did this take place? Well, it took place as Pharaoh hardened his own heart through seeing the things God was doing and choosing to reject them. Moses gives a sign. Moses brings a plague. Pharaoh sees it, hardens his heart, decides not to let people let the people go. It happens again. He's, his heart becomes hard again. So Pharaoh is active in the hardening of his own heart. This is key. This is very important. What we see in the end is this picture of God hardening hearts, is that there are people who are, because of their own sinful attitudes, they're disposed against God, and God shows them miracles, God shows them light, God gives them truth, and because of their attitudes, they reject the light, they close their eyes to the truth, and they become harder. So God, by showing them himself in glory, effectively hardens their hearts, because they are wicked. Do you understand what's happening here is, um, I like this analogy, When I was a kid, there's times where I would want to ask something of a parent and I knew if I asked them right now, they will just get mad and they will say no for sure. Right? Like if I'd asked them, it would have, I would have by asking them, I would have hardened their hearts because they were in an attitude that would have made them say no to me because that's, that's just the way it was. This isn't like, I wouldn't recommend this as parenting advice. Don't be like that. <laughs> don't, don't make your kids like check your eye expressions before they know if they can talk to you or not. But, but that's how it was. And, and so in the same sense, God knows, hey, Pharaoh is so against me in his attitude that when I show his miracles, when I show my miracles and I demand for him to let my people go, he will harden his own heart. If I ask him now, he'll harden his heart. So God's, God hardens his heart. By showing him miracles hardens his heart by demonstrating his power hardens his heart by demanding. He let the people go God's not hardening his heart by doing heart surgery He's hardening his heart by confronting wicked Pharaoh with light and Pharaoh closes his eyes This is what Jesus does in the Gospels when he when he shows his miracles to the Pharisees and they reject him It hardens their hearts But only by him doing the very thing that would soften the heart of the person who's open to God so um, we don't see this sort of like um, single cause thing where God just grabs someone's heart and goes, I'm going to make you reject me. But no, no, it's like, you're going to reject me. And as I show you more light, you're going to reject me even more because you're going to harden your heart. I'll harden it by showing you more light. That's how I see it. And I get into great detail, share a ton of different scriptures on the topic of God hardening hearts in this, in the video, I'll link in the live chat as well as down below. Number 13, this is from anonymous question. It says, uh, Hey, pastor Mike, found out that several big teachers and content writers at my church don't believe the Bible's inerrant should I be concerned? Um, yeah I mean should be concerned. Um, I don't see inerrancy as a central issue in and of itself but the issue of of, of, of um, rejecting inerrancy once you reject inerrancy you now hold that you're, you're in you're in a nebulous and potentially problematic scenario where when you open the Bible, you may or may not decide that that part is in error. And if you keep it to yourself, you'll cause less damage to others. But if you decide to preach it from the pulpit, I just think the Bible's wrong here. That's a problem. So there are those who are not inerrant. Let me describe two different kinds of non-inerrantists, or maybe you call them errantists, two different kinds of people who believe the Bible may have errors. Uh, One person who's like, hey, I think at least potentially the Bible may have errors. Um, you know, that it's possible. I'm not I'm not ruling it out as a possibility. But I'm not defining that's an error, and I'm gonna go and stand in the pulpit and tell everybody I think that was wrong. I'm just saying I don't have that 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 theological belief that it's an error. and I I'm still gonna treat it like it's the authoritative word of God. Okay, then you have and you call them like a passive errantist, maybe. Then you have the the, we'll call them the active errantist. And this is the person who really wants to help change the church on what they believe about the Bible because they think the Bible has big problems. And they think they're helping. They believe they're helping, but they're going to say, well, I I don't think God ever commanded that to happen. That's an error in the Bible. I don't think that historically ever happened. I think that's an error in the Bible. And I really want to, Prove that I'm a, a a level-headed person. Prove that I'm a rational individual who's willing to follow the evidence. So I'm going to make sure everybody knows that they should dis- disregard the Bible on here. You know, trust me. Don't don't believe what's written there. Um, that person is obviously a much bigger problem than the passive errantist. Um, so you should you be concerned? Potentially, yes. Um, should you get emotional and lose your cool about it? No. Um, I think you should be legitimately concerned. You um, try to find out what, what the direction is, what's going on. If the people at your own fellowship are becoming really sort of liberal theology in that, I'm not talking about politics here, although often it's connected, but I'm talking about the theology. If they're becoming that way, most people who go into a church that's working more, con- more conservative or I should say traditional real Christian theology, and then they become like liberalized over time. They often will be incognito. They won't tell everyone. They'll be secretive about it. Just just plain deceptive and manipulative, to be honest, where they slowly over time try to get as many people over to their liberal side as possible as they start to undermine the church. And if that's what's going on, I'm like, well, either they're leaving or I'm leaving. It's that It's that simple. It's not fun. It's not pleasant. I'm not angry. I'm just, one of us has got to go. And um, if that's not the case, if you have the more of the passive inheritors who, who's the passive errantist I described earlier, then it may not be as much of an issue. God give you wisdom. <laughs> so uh number 14, anonymous question says, How should Christians who are unwilling slash uncalled to adopt respond to gay couples who adopt without looking like hypocrites or inhospitable since they're not taking these kids themselves? Um okay, so you're a Christian who is either either you don't want to adopt or you're or you're just you're not called to adopt like you have some other direction you feel like God's given you in your life and you're interacting with say a gay couple who wants to adopt and you're thinking you have to oppose that but you don't want to look like a hypocrite because you're not adopting and these kids need a home um I'm a little unresolved on this issue um I think I, I've complicated feelings about it <laughs> and so let me share with you guys some of my thoughts but preface it with this I'm not telling you to think what I think here I'm telling you why I have a hard time answering this question. So I'm probably, I I know there's things I don't have figured out and don't understand this on this particular topic, nor am I afraid of like the pro-gay lobby coming after me or something like that. Look, I'm telling you what I really think. Okay. Here's my really honest, hopefully Christian thoughts on the topic. Um, I think it's good and right with, if you have a choice of, you know, you're, you're, you're the adoption home you're the facility and you're like I'm choosing where these kids go you should be discerning and thoughtful about who you send a kid to so you want to send them to stable families that can, can can help them and take care of them it will be good for them and all that sort of thing I think it's entirely right for a Christian organization to prefer Christian couples for adoption and to say we don't want to adopt to, to uh, same sex couples I think that's right for a number of reasons not just because there's sexual things going on but because there's also not a mother or not a father in the home on the other hand I also feel that there's like a glut of unadopted, uncared for kids. And it's like, if it's a, cho- if it's a choice between like foster homes and a same sex couple, are we really going to say that we'd rather than be in a foster home? I mean, w- I, I don't know that I'm on board with that. Like, I'm just trying to say like, this is the real world where we deal with complicated moral issues in life. And, I'm not sure that I'm okay with that. And so I I like, okay, I, I would, I would if I had to make a policy off the top of my head as a Christian, I would say my policy would be prefer- preferring Christian couples, right? Who have the highest of all qualifications for adoption. But when you have all these unadopted kids in foster care, and you think they're not going to get adopted, that I would start to lower the standards because it's better than foster care. And so, I, I mean, how do you, how do you, how do I give you advice to handle your situation? I'm not entirely sure. Um, in the end, nothing I say is going to please a same sex couple because they think that their relationship is absolutely equal to a husband and wife, a male, female relationship. And that's like demonstrably not true. It's not equal in that there is simply not a mother or not a father, right? Having two guys is not the same as having a male and a female that raise you. Um, it's just not like, this is not the same. And, and, if you, to act like your mom is the same as your dad, or your dad is the same as your mom, and there's no you can just sw- swap them out, is is silly. It's it's silly, and, and it's going to get me in a lot of trouble for saying it. But this should be obvious that men and women are different, and this is a good thing, and that we exist in family units with those differences for the benefit of children. That that's part of the design, and so less something less than that is is obviously less than optimal. Even if you don't talk about the open, um, sexual things that are going on, like not like open, like open doors, but you know what I mean? That it's open, it's known, it's part of the family and other issues that might be there as well. Yeah. So I'm sorry. I can't offer more thoughts on this. I would just look for a Christian thinker who spent more time on it than I have because I'm, I'm like you, it's not, maybe it's like some of you just not sure how I navigate this topic entirely. Number 15, Daniel Solens says, would you recommend current Christians develop an awareness of scripture that is no longer canon? Greatly appreciate your YouTube ministry. You've encouraged me to start a YouTube myself. That's great. Um, I'm glad about that. I hope we get more and more Christians starting YouTube channels and doing it with integrity and walking the line and being faithful. And the only advice I'd give you there is, Daniel, be very, very patient and have your integrity commitments before all other commitments. Um, so Christians developing an awareness of scripture that is no longer canon. Um, there is no such thing as scripture that is no longer canon. So, I, And I don't think you meant it that way, Daniel. I'm just going to respond in case people are hearing it that way. Um, if it was ever scripture, it is still scripture. And Christians, we don't decide what's part of the Bible or not. The canon is simply a fact of reality. It just is what it is. Like God inspired these books. They're canon. Whether you include them or acknowledge them or not, they are canon. Then we have our list, which is our opinions about what actually is canon. And I believe that the list that the Protestants have is the correct list. And it's the list that the, um, that, that Jesus would approve in my opinion. I believe it's the list that represents actual canon. But when I say like, say that, um, first and second Maccabees don't belong in the Bible, I'm not saying they're no longer canon. And I don't think they're scripture because that's a term I would use to describe what is part of canon. I don't. I think they never were at any point part of it and that they were included in some people's lists, mistakenly. So would I recommend that Christians develop an awareness of these things? It depends. Every Christian does not need to go and read First and Second Maccabees. Um, some of you should, right? Like, let's say that, like, like me, you want to interact with Roman Catholics. So you should probably be aware of the extra writings they have in their version of the Old Testament. Might help to read First and Second Maccabees. You want, to, you want to interact with Orthodox. Well, you might want to read 3rd and 4th Maccabees, you know? And so these are the different editions that they have. Um, and so I, I think it can be helpful to do that. If you're studying ancient Jewish stuff and you really want to understand the culture and the time of Christ, then you might want to read some intertestamental literature. That's not canon. It's not scripture. It never was, but it's just intertestamental. You might read Enoch, not because it's Bible, but because it gives you some contextual understanding that you can Look into doing your serious studies of things like the Book of Jude, you know. So, um, so that can that can be there. I think we just need clarity on what is scripture and what is not. So, um, I don't I don't read them like they're you know Bell and the Dragon. I'm not reading it like it's part of Daniel. I'm reading it like it's some extra edition that doesn't belong, and that needs to be decided before you head down that path. Um, current Christians, it depends on what your current outreach and interests are. And your pursuits, in serving the Lord and knowing Him better, if it relates to these books, they're not off limits. They're not a problem in that sense. If you have the wisdom to read it, read them as they are. My, my five cents on that. Uh, number sixteen, Taylor Barkley. That's just inflation, guys. Uh, Taylor Barkley has a question: Have you studied the Galilean wedding being justification for a pre-trib rapture? Yes, I have. I'm having a hard time finding trusted sources that teach on this. Thank you for your ministry. You rock, awesome. Thanks, Taylor. By the way, I'll show you guys my new my new camera effect. Check this out. This is the new, this is my new camera effect. It's it's pretty intense. It's pretty intense. You can get this. It's it's not very expensive. You just have to get a giant magnifying glass, and then you can have the camera effect. Um. So yeah, I have looked into the Galilean wedding, and and I when I did my my study, I did my study on like six views, four views. I don't remember anymore. Um. Of Christian views of the end times, and that included like some rapture discussions and stuff in there as well. Um, And a lot of people commented like, Mike, it's the wedding analogy. The wedding analogy proves the pre-trib rapture. Here's the problem with this. The, The Jewish traditions that we see today or that we even see a thousand years ago, that doesn't mean that those were the same traditions in the day of Jesus. And what's really difficult to do is to take these Jewish wedding traditions and to prove that they were happening in the time of Jesus. So what you called the Galilean wedding It may not have been the Galilean wedding during the time of Christ. And until somebody can show that it was, that this isn't a later tradition, we can't really use it to try to prove that Jesus had it in mind when he was describing the coming of the son of man. And so I'm not saying it's false. I'm saying it's not proven. You can have it out there as a possibility. You can consider it, but we need to see first century or earlier or maybe even 2nd century sources that indicate that this is part of a tradition that was ongoing during the time. Um, there's a lot that happens. Like even now, we, we, for instance, Christians, we see these Passover celebrations where they're like, the Jews do this, the Jews do that, the Jews do this. And you're like, I read my Bible and there wasn't nearly that many traditions. Yes, many of these came later. But many of these have come long after the time of Christ. So we might say like, oh, well, they're hiding the matzah and they're doing all this stuff. And you're like, yeah, but were they doing that in Jesus's day? I don't want to be anachronistic where I read later things into the first century and then maybe misunderstand the meanings that they had. So, um, I'm not saying the preacher rapture is wrong. I'm saying, I think this Galilean wedding argument is a wrong argument to support the preacher rapture because it doesn't seem substantiated as a first century tradition in my experience. And I've never seen anybody, I mean, looked into it, I've never seen anybody show me, so I'm open to it haven't seen the evidence. Number 17, Judah Matthews has a question. What is the significance of the Bible saying two or three witnesses to establish an accusation as opposed to saying two witnesses or three witnesses? Um, I think that, uh, I think that perhaps the the implication is that it's, it's flexible. So depending on the quality of the witnesses, you might want two, you might want three. That's why it's like two or three. Um, because it's it's trying to it's sort of trying to generalize the rule and not make it exactly two exactly three. It's meant to be a general thing that's applied with wisdom. Uh, I think this has the case is the case with a lot of the um, a lot of the laws. I also think that witnesses could be evidence itself. Like the Bible does talk, and you, you, some may think I'm going off a little bit too flexible here, and that's fair. Maybe you, maybe I am. I, I think this is safe to say though. The Bible talks about how like. Um, the, the, these rocks stand as witness to us or the, the rocks will cry out that kind of thing that there's That human witnesses aren't the only things that can be brought as witnesses So perhaps there is a, a woman who says he, he violated me in this way and then she goes See, I have the marks on my body and i'm like, okay Well, that's more than one witness, isn't it? Right because I have physical marks that are a witness that at least that she was harmed And then i have her claim that it was him that did it and then maybe i bring in something else someone goes yeah i saw them arguing earlier oh okay well this is starting to look like two or three witnesses to me and so um dna evidence could be a witness that you could bring even today right dna evidence is a witness it's like the dna says ah i'm witnessing this this person was touching such and such thing or was at such and such location so i think we should consider it like that it's it's just meant you know to be a little bit flexible Um, 18 from anonymous says, what are your thoughts on a head pastor who does not interact with his staff? I teach at a church and have no real relationship to the point of pain with my pastor as he is never present. Um, um, that can be rough. So my, my thoughts on this are that there's this massive variety of different churches, though, the way that they organize their structures and, um, and because of that, it makes it a little difficult to answer this question because a head pastor in one church may have a very different function in another church. And so it does sound as though it's unhealthy to me, um, a head pastor who doesn't interact with his staff. But at the same time, like, let's say that you're the, you're the, uh, okay, I, I once was serving. I used to lead worship over at Calvary Chapel Downey in their youth ministry. And um, and I knew um Pastor uh, Bill Buffington, who was the youth pastor at the time, right? Who now has his own YouTube channel. He's got a bunch of other stuff going on. Um, And he's at Calvary Chapel Signal Hill now, right? And, uh, or excuse me, I said Bill Buffington. He was the assistant. <clears throat> it was James Cadiz, who was the the, the, the high school pastor. And uh, Bill Buffington is the assistant. And they both are pastors and got their own things going on. James has his own YouTube channel and all that sort of thing. Calvary Chapel Signal Hill. Um, While I was there, I knew James well. I knew Bill well. These are the guys who were over me right? And I was serving as leading worship and I was a counselor for the youth ministry. This was like in 1999. (laughs) And, um, and there I am serving, but Jeff Johnson, the senior pastor, I had met him, I think four times and every time he thought it was the first time. (laughs) And Jeff Johnson is a well-known Calvary pastor and he's a great pastor. No complaints about him, right? We had met four times every time he thought it was the first time we met. Um, Now I could say the pastor doesn't even know the name of the worship leader in the youth ministry, but the size of the church is massive. That was a really big church. It was a mega church, still is. And that church, Calvary Downey, like I can't even blame him. There's so many people there, so many people involved in ministry. I can't blame him for not knowing me or not spending time with me. So do do you get what I mean? It's like, I have to look at the pastor as a human and say, you can only know and interact with so many people. You can only be friends with so many people. But if the church is small and if the pastor is deliberately avoiding relationships for whatever weird reason he has, that's a serious problem. But if the church you're describing is very large, then you might be putting too many, too many expectations on the senior pastor because he's just one guy. And if you have a big church, you have lots of people who want to talk to you, lots of people who want to interact with you, and you start to find that you don't even have time for the people you do call friends. And that if you're if he's in that scenario, I want to say give him a break but if he's if it's a smaller church and he's just avoiding connecting with the people that are involved in ministry if he's got 30 pastors he's not going to know them all f- closely if he's got 3 he's got 4 he should know you you should at least be able to spend get get lunch with him or coffee with him yeah that 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 would be wrong um i hope that that helps um but yeah you though you are serving um you're teaching at the church you need to be in fellowship with somebody, even if it's not the senior pastor, the head pastor, whoever, but there needs to be other brothers who are in ministry that you can connect with. And I do encourage you to try to build those relationships and spend some time because I'm sorry for the the loneliness that you're feeling that's there as you serve. That's not healthy. It's not good for you. Seek out some relationships and um, uh, may, yeah, may God open some doors for you. Number 19, Kelly Smets has a question. I have the feeling that something is living in my house that shouldn't be there and is taking all the energy out of me. Do ghosts slash demons really exist? And how can I get rid of them? Please help me. Kelly, um, so this is a challenging one to answer. Um, ghosts, I don't believe that there are ghosts in any sort of sense that we would see people just presently haunting a house, like in sort of the, the, the way we see in TV shows and movies and things like that. Um, I think that's just people like that because it's scary and fun for them to make movies about demons definitely exist um but what i would focus on first kelly is this if, if i had you if we could sit down and talk i would i would actually ask you and, I, and i'm being honest with you i would listen very carefully to your answers i would ask you what do you mean tell me what is causing these feelings that something's living in your house tell me specifically what happened when did it happen what did it feel like? Why did you feel that way? Have you ever felt this way before? Um, and I would first be analyzing whether this was something that was sourced in your feelings and fears, or if it was something that was in the external world, which is possible, some sort of demonic sort of oppression going on. At, at any rate, I would probably gather the, the leaders of your church together, go to your house and pray and pray. And that would be the next step to take there. But you you would want someone to help you process this to see, okay, is it me or is there something really going on? Because if there's something going on, then prayer and, is going to have an impact in that moment. But if it's me, if I'm projecting things, then I might need help processing that and discerning. Sometimes you have to tell yourself, no, I'm just wrong here, right? And, and I don't know which one of those is the case for you, but that would be why you want to get some counsel from a godly person to sit down with. Um, those are the things I'd recommend. But uh, greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. If you're a Christian, you really, um, uh, you, you do not need to fear. Um, you, you, you can you can trust in the power of Christ within you. Um, last question. Giant mushroom tree. Giant mushroom tree says, Hey, Mike, how can God justly punish Gog slash Magog for attacking Israel after he himself made them do it? And how is this not God tempting them to sin by making them attack Israel? Um, I'm trying man you, you, you're getting into like Ezekiel the end of Ezekiel is like all of Ezekiel is like really challenging stuff and um, I don't know that I can answer the question specifically about Gog and Magog because I'd have to like reread significant sections of scripture to to like really think it through um, how is it worded in what way does it say that God tempted them is God tempting them like what what is the terminology that's used there I would want to carefully examine that I don't have that fresh in my mind But let me say this, there are examples in the Bible of God, um, having a nation attack Israel and then later punishing that nation. But in the examples that I can think of, they're not punished just for attacking Israel. They're punished for something like, like say Edom, uh, in the Israel Edom, which is more fresh on my mind. Uh, Israel is taken captive, right? By, is it the Babylonian captivity? I think. And Edom, one of their sister nations, right, which on your map would be Israel and Edom down here, I think. And um, Edom, the sister nation, what they what they do is they start picking off the the Jews while they're being carried away, while they're being brought captive. They're mocking, they're ridiculing them, and they're mistreating them, and they're attacking them, even they're kicking someone while they're down, is effectively what's happening here. And God's gonna judge Edom for doing that. Now, the the exile that they experienced, that Israel experienced, was judgment. And Edom, you could say was part of that judgment. God didn't protect them from Edom because of their sin. But Edom, what they did was sinful. So they will will be judged as well. Because sometimes God looks at the world and he says, you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong. And I'm going to use you to deal with you, but I'm still going to deal with you because you're also wrong. And sometimes it's that kind of scenario where, yeah, um, you, uh, you, were being used by God to, to judge someone else, but that doesn't mean you have no issues between you and God. So in that sense, I would say, that's how I would try to process those, those types of questions. What is God really punishing them for? Is it for doing what he, he had them do? Or is it for other things like how they did it? Um, that would be a different issue. So the, um, uh, I thought I had an announcement for you guys. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a couple of quick things. If you have the Bible Thinker app and you haven't updated it recently in the past few weeks, you know, please update your app. Go to the Bible Thinker app store, update the app uh, because we've we've changed, for those of you who do the donations, we've changed how our donations are working. Everybody donating to Bible Thinker was using a program called Cornerstone and we're switching it all over to uh, something called Kindful. And everyone trying to get to Cornerstone as of hopefully the next day or two, like you literally can't, you won't be able to. I'm not here appealing for more donors. Those who are supporting this ministry, thank you. You are taking care of us. We're taking care of. And I don't like asking for more than we need. So thank you. We're we're good. If you're like, I feel like I should support Mike. You're like, well, maybe you should support somebody else. Because like we're taking care of. God's really been blessing us. And if there's a need, I'll, I'll tell you guys, if there ever is some great need. The goal of this ministry is not fundraising though. And we're being taken care of and, and we're producing content. and it's impacting lives. And that is, that is the agenda there. Um, So yeah, make sure to update your app. Also go to Biblethinker.org If you haven't done this and you can search, this is, this is such a cool thing. We spent countless man hours on this. You can search and find not only videos from me that you can see on YouTube, but you can search and find specific timestamps that deal with specific questions you have using our search features. There's two options and you can check those out on the search page you could be like, well, where did Mike talk about the Nephilim? And you type Nephilim in there, you're going to see like six timestamps to exact videos. You click it, it takes you the exact minute where I'm talking about that issue. Whatever it is, you name the issue. Gog and Magog. <laughs> it'll, it'll pop up. So, um, So yeah, I hope that helps. You all out. There's my cat. Yeah. Thank you for joining me today. I will be doing this again like I do every Friday. I'll be doing it next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time. That's California time. And otherwise, um, don't know if I'll have a video for you guys Monday. It's possible. We'll have to wait and see. That's all. Lord bless you and keep you. Keep your eyes on Jesus.